Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Well, on The Naked Scientists this week, a new species of early human ancestor. What does it reveal about where we all came from? Also, volcanoes on Venus and how microbes in our intestines are picking up and using the genes that we're eating. We'll find out how they're doing that in just a second. Hello, I'm Chris Smith, and also here this week to bring you The Naked Scientist is our physics guru, Dave Ansell. Hello, Dave. Hello. And also our resident archaeologist, Diana O'Carroll. Diana. Yes, indeed. And also this week, it's our science question and answer show. We'll be solving your science questions. So stay tuned to hear how plants make themselves smell like insects, why bruises change colour, and how we know how old a fossil really is. And if there's some biology that's got you baffled, or some physics that's got you foxed. Details of how you can get in touch are on the way. Dave. Thanks Diana and for this week's Kitchen Science I've got a really neat party trick for you to try. It's really simple all you need is either a ping pong ball and a bowl of water or some bowl of cereal and some milk. Both will work and it's really quite impressive. I'll walk you, how to, I'll walk you through how to do it in just a moment. Thank you Dave. Bringing breakfast cereal in on Kitchen Science, always a good idea. That's all on the way. The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Well, this week a new species of early human has been described, Australopithecus sediba, and it looks like it's a key member of the family as it links to the more archaic small-brained Australopithecine with the more modern species of Homo. Sediba was unearthed two years ago at a somewhat aptly named site of Cradle of Humankind World Heritage Site, and its discoverer is Professor Lee Berger from the University of Witzwatersrand. Bit of a mouthful. Two Sediba have been looked at by Berger and an international team of 60 researchers. The adult female and juvenile male are actually quite complete for such early specimens. They allowed Berger and his team to study their pelvis shape, spine, ankle and skulls. And what's interesting is that they have a mixture of old and new traits. Like modern humans, they had quite an upright stance, small teeth, an advanced pelvis and relatively long legs. They were, however, just over four foot tall in adulthood and had quite small brains. The researchers have used a combination of dating techniques to get as accurate as possible an age on these creatures, including uranium-lead isotopes and paleomagnetism. From this, they believe that Sediba would have lived about 1.95 million years ago, and it's this period when the climate record changes dramatically and Africa becomes more arid. So perhaps the development of Sediba and later humans owes something to these climate changes. 
What does this mean in terms of where we come from, though, Dinah? Where does this fit into the grand scheme of things where we pop up? Well, it's the first, well, best example of the Homo species branching off from Australopithecines, which is this archaic sort of small thing. Um, you've probably heard of Lucy, haven't you? Um, and it's it's an example. It's well, it is kind of a missing link, really, of how our species links to theirs. Now, it appears to have found active volcanoes on Venus. Now, despite Venus being very similar to the Earth in size and general composition, its crust appears to be very different. Earth has got a crust made up of moving plates which collide form mountains and have volcanoes around the edges. Venus has definitely had some form of volcanism in the past, but there's no plates. And they know this because there's far too few impact craters on the surface, and so something must have got rid of them. So it's basically recreating or resurfacing itself too yeah, quickly. There appears to be some resurfacing events, but up till now there's been no evidence of volcanism happening at the moment so they have no idea whether that resurfacing is immediate happening all over the place at once or it's been happening slowly over a long period but finding this out is very difficult because it's got incredibly thick atmosphere far far thicker than earth it's full of sulfuric acid it's almost opaque in all frequencies but Suzanne Smerka um, and colleagues have been studying Venus using an instrument on the ESA Venus Express mission, which can look through narrow infrared transmission windows in Venus's atmosphere. They've particularly been studying structures that look like the hot spots on Earth. These are places like Hawaii, which are associated with an upwelling in the mantle, so you've got hot mantle rocks moving upwards. They haven't seen flowing lava, but they have seen rocks which are very good at emitting infrared, possibly rocks like basalt on Earth. On many planets, this wouldn't tell you very much, because if basalt could have been erupted millions of years ago and you wouldn't be able to tell. But because Venus's atmosphere is so reactive, what happens is this basalt tends to form minerals like calcite and quartz, um, which are much worse at emitting infrared. So they don't know exactly how long this would take, but the experiments they've done in the lab indicate it's a region of a few years. Um, and so it looks like Venus might be the first rocky planet other than Earth found with active volcanism going on at the moment. And it's so is the reason that it is completely smooth and craterless because it's resurfacing itself, because it's so volcanically active, it's just spewing lava out all the time, which is covering the surface? Is that the point you're making? Um, they definitely think there have been events which have done that at some point in the past. They don't know whether they're still going on or whether they all finished millions of years ago, whether they're ever going to happen again. And it's really important to understand this sort of thing because Venus is in many ways the Earth's twin, although it's very different to the Earth. And if they can understand why it's different, you'll understand the Earth a lot better. I was talking to a geologist, James Jackson, at um, Cambridge University about Venus just the other day, actually, and he was saying that one of the reasons why Venus doesn't have plate tectonics, like the Earth does, with plates moving around on the surface, is because it's so hot, 450 degrees C on the sunny side of Venus, that this means that there's no water as liquid. And everyone has, has come to realise, by studying this on Earth, that you need liquid water as the sort of lubricant to enable plate tectonics to work, and it just can't happen on Venus, and therefore it doesn't have Venus quakes but it can nonetheless have volcanoes, which is fascinating. Now, one other thing that caught my eye this week, and I think this is terrific, to think that what we're eating is actually ending up as genetic material inside some of the bugs in our own guts. Scientists have discovered that bacteria inside us could pick up bits of DNA from the food we eat and incorporate it into their own genetic material in order to enable them to eat more exotic types of food, like, for example... Sushi and seaweed. Uh, this is a paper in Nature. It's by Gervin Michael, who's at the uh, University of Victoria in British Columbia. And he and his colleagues were actually studying a marine organism, a bacterium. It's actually called Zabelia galactonivorans. And this bacterium lives on seaweed and it can break down 
sugars that seaweeds make called porphyrans. These are big sort of starch-like molecules with lots of sugars stuck together. And these bacteria, this group have discovered, make enzymes called porphyrinases that can break down these particular sugar molecules and they get some energy out of it. So they thought when they discovered these enzymes and discovered the genes for them, they'd have a look in the International Genetic Database and see if it had ever been reported before. And they did look, and they did find it had been reported before, but not where anyone was expecting, because sequences similar turned up in the guts of people from Japan, but nowhere else. They even looked in the intestinal washings in bacteria from people in America, and they couldn't find any trace of these genes in the bacteria there, but they were in people from Japan. And, of course, the link is that people in Japan eat enormous amounts of seaweed. About 14.5 grams per person per day of seaweed gets consumed in Japan, much of it as the wrapping around sushi, for example. And what they think has happened is that these bacteria, these marine bacteria, have been eaten alongside the seaweed, They've got into the intestine, and the native bacteria naturally in the guts of the Japanese people have grabbed the genetic material from this particular marine organism because it knows how to break down this seaweed, and they have used that genetic know-how, and it is enabling the bacteria in their own guts to break down this unusual human food source. And there's a wonderful commentary. One of the people who's actually written on this, Stanford uh, scientist Justin Sonnenberg, who's a microbiologist in California, and he actually wrote a beautiful commentary on this, and he points out it's a bit like you going to a restaurant and being served a really tough steak. And you go over to the cutlery drawer and you pick up a really sharp knife, a steak knife, rather than the butter knife they've given you. And this enables you to hack off big chunks of meat from the steak. So it makes a food source accessible to you that you wouldn't do otherwise. And he finishes his piece by saying, Next time you take a bite of an unfamiliar food, think about the microbiological inhabitants that you may also be ingesting and the possibility that you'll be providing one of your 10 trillion closest friends with a new set of utensils. How about that? Do bacteria do this often, uh, gaining genetic material from things they eat or they're living near? Well, the point they're making is that we just don't know. No one's realised that, that a common human form of bacterium could pick up genetic know-how from other environmental organisms and assimilate it because it, it would have been very hard to know otherwise because we're all sharing the same sort of world and the same sort of food. But when you separate land and sea and, and then bring things from the sea into the human diet, like seaweed, a bit unusual, there's an opportunity to discover this, and that's, why they've, that's what they've found. Fantastic. Now, scientists have been using a very everyday item to improve composite materials, T-shirts. Now, one of the hottest areas of material science is the development of composite materials that combine useful features of two or more pure materials. It's often useful to mix these materials as thoroughly as possible, but this can get difficult as you get smaller because particles tend to stick together rather than mixing well. Now, Xinyong Tao and colleagues have come up with an interesting solution, the humble cotton T-shirt. Cotton is particularly well-suited to this purpose because each cotton fibre is covered with tiny hairs. These give it a huge surface area which gives cotton its remarkable ability to absorb water. These hairs are beautifully distributed and don't aggregate and don't stick together. So if you can convert them into the material you want to distribute, they're ideal. Um, they first, so what they did was they carbonised the T-shirt, they um, basically drove off all the water, the hydrogen and the oxygen, just leaving carbon, surrounded it with boron and heated it up. The carbon then reacts with the boron to form boron carbide, and because it's in little wires, then little nanowires. Now, boron carbide is the third hardest material known. It's often used in body armour because um, it's very, very hard. It can sort of break up the bullet as it hits you. Um, and it's got other useful properties, like it's very good at absorbing neutrons and it has an incredibly good temperature resistance. Now, these wires can then be mixed with a polymer and they showed that it made the polymer significantly stronger. 
So you've literally got a bulletproof vest. It's a bulletproof T-shirt, potentially. I think practically it's not going to work because the way the bulletproof vests work is by having quite a big lump of the stuff which actually just shatters a bullet, whereas a little wire isn't going to work like that, I'm afraid. So what are the applications then? So if you wanted to make a neutron absorber, so if you want to build a, um, something around a nuclear reactor, you could do it really well. Um, they also found that it was very good at absorbing ultraviolet light, so it could be a good way of protecting a material from sunlight which damages it and things I like that. I did hear it soaks up UV, so it would be quite a handy sort of way of preventing you from getting sunburn, although it's probably being a bit extreme. Thank you very much, Dave. Well, also in the news this week, researchers in California have shown how a new drug, which they call IRGD, can help to fight tumours, and that's done by boosting levels of chemotherapy agents that can get inside the cancer. And to explain more how they've done this, we're joined now by Professor Erki Ruslati, who is from the Stanford Burnham Institute at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's with us now. Hello, Erki. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Um, wonderful paper. I enjoyed reading it very much. Tell us, if you could, first of all, though, what is the problem with getting chemotherapy drugs inside cancers in the first place? Yeah, tumours are blood vessels, and anything that is introduced into the circulation will then get into the tumour, and that includes anti-cancer drugs. The problem is that tumours have a high internal pressure, and uh, the flow of the tissue fluid is actually from the tumour to uh, the surrounding tissue, which means that it is difficult for drugs to penetrate into tumours, and they only get a couple of cell diameters from the blood vessels, which leaves some of the tumor cells with a suboptimal amount of drug, and that contributes to recurrence and and also the uh, resistance that uh, tumors usually uh, develop. And so, of course, physicians try to compensate by increasing the concentration of the drug in the bloodstream, but then that, of course, has a knock-on effect for healthy tissue because it begins to generate side effects. That is correct. So one can only go that far using that approach. So if you've got a way of carrying chemicals selectively into tumours far further and far more easily, in other words, at lower concentrations in the blood than previously, you could potentially hit the tumour much harder where it hurts, leaving healthy tissue spared and therefore minimise the side effects. That is right, and that is what we are able to do with IRGD. How does IRGD work? What is it and what does it do? IRGD is a peptide. Uh, we originally found it uh, using screening of huge peptide libraries in live mice. It is possible to make libraries of billions of peptides, and, and we started screening them in vivo for their ability to go to tumors. And one of the peptides we found turned out to be quite special it has uh, the RGD sequence, that's arginine glycine aspartic acid, which uh, my laboratory found 25 years ago as a key sequence for cell attachment. Now, the receptors for this sequence are upregulated, present at high concentrations in the blood vessels of tumors, but not in normal tissues. So the RGD sequence makes the peptide concentrate in tumor blood vessels. It then gets cleaved there by an enzyme which takes away most of the RGD activity but exposes another receptor binding sequence that now transfers the peptide to another receptor called neuropilin 1. And when a peptide binds to neuropilin 1, it activates 
a transport system, and that transport system can take the anti-cancer drugs deep into the tumour. And so doing some some simple experiments to work out how much better it is if you give this agent to the tumour alongside some kind of anti-cancer agent, how much higher concentrations of anti-cancer drugs can you get in the tumours when you do that? Well, it depends on uh, the time when we look at the uh, drug concentration. If we look at it fairly soon after a single injection, we can get 7 to 40 times more of the drug into the tumour. Then if the treatment is long-term, say several weeks, then the difference becomes somewhat smaller, but it persists even after uh, weeks of treatment. And is this with the IRGD protein linked chemically to the drug or with the drug just given separately and at the same time into the bloodstream so the two molecules are washing round together and the IRGD drills a hole in the tumour and the drug then goes in? We originally would couple our homing peptides to the drug and that makes them more effective. But we then discovered, and that's the the message of this newest paper, that um, we didn't have to couple the two together. We could just uh, give them at the same time. And as you say, what happens is that the peptide activates this transport pathway, and it's a bulk transport pathway uh, such that it takes in and through the tumor anything that is around when the peptide is there and has activated the system. And lastly, you obviously showed this, as you said, in mice. Will this work in men? So we've got something that works in mice and men, to make a horrible pun. Yeah, well, so far we know that we can grow human tumors in mice and and the system works. We have not um, tested uh, anything uh, in in humans yet uh, that requires a lot more preliminary work. We're just tooling up to uh, start studies. Well, we wish you luck and thank you very much for joining us. A wonderful study. If you'd like to read it, it's actually published in the Journal of Science this week. And also there's more details about that on our website and all of the other stories that Diana and Dave have covered at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Diana O'Carroll. We're answering your science questions this week. And if you'd like to get in touch and ask us one on Twitter, the handle is at Naked Scientists, or you can, of course, email us. It's chris at thenakedscientists.com. We've also got a pinging kitchen science this week. So, Dave, what are you going to do? Okay, this kitchen science is incredibly simple. Basically, what you need is a glass of water, pretty much full, and then you want something which will float in it, something fairly small. Ping pong ball size is good. It doesn't want to float too deeply, just floating on the surface. Put the ball in the glass of water and see what happens to it. And as an extension, can you get that ball to stay in the middle? Okay, I'm intrigued. So if you reckon you can do that, take your ping pong ball, take your glass of water, put the ping pong ball in the glass, tell us what happens. Have a look where the ball goes. There's a clue for you. Right, Reg is on the phone. Hello, Reg. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Thank you. What would you like to talk to us about? If I get a bruise and it's on my fingers or my toes, then it grows out under the nail and it comes out like a scab when I cut my nails. But if I get a bruise on my leg or anywhere else, then it just turns purple and then yellow and then it's gone. So obviously it gets broken down and gets out somehow, but how does that happen? Yeah, I hope you don't get bruises on your nails too often because that's terribly painful. (laughs) No, usually it's Um, on my leg. 
what's actually happening a bruise is indicative of trauma so some kind of trauma has to happen which allows blood to escape from a blood vessel into what's called the extravascular space so it spills out and splurges out around the subcutaneous tissue in in the body it can also happen in other tissues you can get bruising of your internal organs contusions of of, of organs including the brain for example but once blood leaves a blood vessel the first thing that happens is that it starts to lose the oxygen that's locked up in the haemoglobin. And when haemoglobin is full of oxygen, it's a nice red colour, so that's why the injury first looks red. And as the haemoglobin gets deoxygenated, it goes a bluey hue and then purplish. And that's the darkening that's happening. The next step is that the inflammation and damage also attracts the immune system. So white blood cells come in, trigger some more inflammation, and they begin to eat up, engulf the red blood cells. And when they do that, they break open the cells and out of the cells comes the haemoglobin, the red pigment. And the protein part of that gets chewed up inside the cell, turned into amino acids and they get recycled or metabolised. And this leaves just the central core of the haemoglobin called the heme group, which is what's known as a porphyrin ring. It's a series of chemical um, carbon rings which have got locked away in their centre an iron atom. That's why it's red, because of the iron. Now, what happens is an enzyme then kicks in called microsomal hemoxygenase, and this breaks open that ring, and it releases the iron, which then goes off into the tissue and gets locked up with something called hemosiderin, and that looks an orange colour, so there's the orange colour in your bruise. But the four, well, the, the, ring of bili, the, the ring of haemoglobin, the heme group, initially gets turned into something called biliverdin, which is a green colour, so there's the green in your bruise, and that very quickly gets reduced to bilirubin, the yellow stuff, and then that's why you also see yellow in your bruise. And as a bruise ages, also it's affected by gravity because these materials begin to spread out in the tissue doing a sort of human chromatography experiment. They spread out and different molecules get stuck to different things and travel at different rates. And so the bruise spreads out and you see this separation of colours and the evolution of the colours. But eventually all those substances just soak away and are taken away by cells in the bloodstream and that's why the bruise eventually fades away and then you get better. So there's your answer. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Good to have you on the show. Thanks. Have Thanks a great day. Thanks for listening. Got another question here. This one's for you, Diana. It's from Andrew Cottrell, who says, How are fossils dated? Something I'd like to know is how do scientists know the age of the Earth, for example? You see, T-Rex lived 165 million years ago. Is that a fact? How do they know that? Well, uh, actually, as I mentioned in the news story earlier, the Sediba um, skeletons were dated using paleomagnetism and uranium uh, lead which is an isotope. But um, with paleomagnetism, what you can do is certain rocks, when they exude from the, from the crust, um, they will have a magnetic polarity, which tells you how, what the magnetic polarity of the Earth was at the time that they appeared. And this changes over time. So you can work out what time this rock was made. And also with uranium isotopes, there are two types. There's uranium-238 and uranium-235, and both of these will decay to lead over time. So you can check the relative proportions of uranium and lead and work out how much has decayed into lead. And these have half-lives of about a million to even 4.5 billion years. So you can actually go quite 
you know, quite far back with your fossils. But then there are other methods. I mean, these are just absolute dating methods, but there's also relative dating. So you can, this is the simplest method, really. You just look at the layers of the rock and you, you say, well, that one's below that one, and we know that one's, you know, so old, so it must be even older. And that's how a lot of fossils are dated. So I guess what you're aiming to do is to use a number of different methods, and it's a bit like drawing a series of lines to see where they all converge. And, and you, you take the best agreement between all the different methods and say, well, that one seems to agree with everything, and therefore it's likely to be that old. Yeah, that's right. And the uranium-lead method is quite popular because it's actually quite accurate. You know, they can get down to 0.1% of the actual date, which is pretty good. Thank you, Dinah. The other thing which was the original way, which doesn't give you an absolute date, but does give you a relative date, is that you look at the other fossils which are around it. Because normally if you've got something like dinosaur bone around it, there's all sorts of tiny things like beetles and little tiny um, snails and things. And if you know a fossil was ex- uh, only appeared at a certain date and went extinct at another date, you know it must be within those two. If you've got 40 or 50 different fossils, you can yeah. get a really quite accurate As long date. as you've got the other ones right, you're all right. <laughs> June in Braintree is wondering, why do, do gums keep receding even after your teeth have come out? The answer is, June, because there's a very close relationship between the tooth and the gum they talk to each other and the gums talk to the teeth the teeth talk to the gums and also to the bones and there's a there's a big interplay between all of those tissues which has what's called a trophic or a growth promoting effect and so if you lose teeth you also lose bone and gums and vice versa so it's because one thing is there to protect and support the other and if you take one away the other one realizes that its role is now a bit more redundant so the gums thin Dave, got a question from James Hamlin, who says to you, could a straw be used to suck greenhouse gases out into space? I've heard the term vacuum of space, so if this is the case, can't we, can't we use our pressure to rid our atmosphere of unwanted greenhouse gases and things like smoke? does sound like a lovely idea um the problem is there's nothing actually around the earth holding the atmosphere in there's not like a great big greenhouse holding the atmosphere in if you keep on going up you just hit the vacuum of space anyway so what's holding the atmosphere down it's just gravity um there's enough the earth has got enough gravity to hold even a tiny molecule of oxygen down on it and the higher you go up the and the, the reason why there's so much air pressure pushing on us now is all of the air above us is getting pulled down by gravity and it's pushing down on us to about 10 tons per square meter so if you put a, a big um, straw up into space all you would do is have a straw with air in it at the bottom and there wouldn't be any air at the top I guess you could possibly pump the air up, but you'd have to push it a long way up for it to get blown blown away by the. If, if you um, could make suns. a straw fifty miles high, you presumably have got the technology to deal with it another way. Would be my argument, wouldn't it? And it would probably take more energy than, than not burning the fuel in the. It'd be an place. impressive sight, though, wouldn't it? It would. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Diana O'Carroll. We're answering your science questions. If you'd like to send us one, chris at thenakedscientist.com is the email address. And you can also Twitter at us. It's at Naked Scientist. We'll be finding out why spiders and other venomous creatures make such a cocktail of horrible toxins. Why do they have this massive case of overkill? That's coming up. Claire's on the phone. Hello, Claire. Hi, Chris. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. How can we help you? Well, I've got a question about microwaves, because um, I quite often use them to heat up dinner. I've heard all sorts of scare stories about um, them doing nasty things to your food, and, and, and I was just wondering, does something change chemically when, when things are heated up in the microwave, or is it just that they get hot? Well, I think there's two ways to look at this. There's the simple, does a microwave, as a form of light, a radio wave relative, if you like, does that have any impact on the chemistry of food, And then the other aspect of this is, does it have any impact on the chemistry of the other things that you put in the microwave, like the container that the food is in? So first of all, let's look at the food angle, because the reason people think microwaves are safe is that the energy in a microwave 
is too low to physically break the bonds that join atoms and molecules together. It's called non-ionising radiation, and for that reason we believe that microwaves are not unsafe. They will not rearrange or mutate things in your food, and they shouldn't therefore pose a threat. But <laughs> what microwaves could do, though, is to interact with other things you put in the microwave, like plastic containers. And not all containers are necessarily safe to be heated up to the kinds of temperatures that they might get to in a microwave because one of the things the microwave does is it has hot spots and cold spots because of the way the waves work and that's why you have to have a turntable but that also means that when you put something in the microwave you could end up with the plastic being in a hot spot and getting very very warm and some chemicals that are added in making plastics these include chemicals called plasticizers can have unwanted effects and there are now big studies going on around the world to see if some of these chemicals are a health risk at the kinds of concentrations at which they are leaching out of plastic bottles. And we did a show a couple of months ago on this subject, um, and we, we looked at various things. There's one called bisphenol A, which is in certain types of plastic, and also some polycarbonate bottles can also release these chemicals. So the bottom line is, at the moment we don't know for sure. There is evidence suggesting that plastics can produce chemicals that may be unsafe if you heat them up, and therefore the best option and the safest option is probably to use a container which is safe in a microwave, either certified as safe as such, or use something made of porcelain, um, because that, we know, doesn't undergo any kind of changes. Would you concur with that, Dave? Yeah, um, I guess the, the one other thing which affects food is um, if you get these hot spots. I mean, it will depend on your microwave, and there are more modern microwaves which have less um, severe hot spots um, that, that you can overheat the food and destroy some of the goodness in it. And so, although it hasn't been hot for very long, if it gets up to maybe 120 for a short period of time, it could destroy some of the vitamins and things. Good point. Thank you, Dave. And thank you for an excellent question, Claire. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. Do get in touch if you'd like to ask us any questions. Chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now it's time to find out what's been happening in the world of technology as we join Mira Senthillingham, who's going back to the age of steam engine in this month's tech update. So it's been a while since we've had a tech segment and so I've come down to the television centre here in London and it's a lovely day so I'm joined outside in the grass area with our resident tech expert, Chris Valance. Hello, Chris. Hi, Mira. This month, Chris, um, you're taking us in the past, but using modern technology. Well, I thought I'd uh, talk about something a little aesthetic. It's a bright, sunny day. Let's talk a bit bit about art, perhaps more than technology. I'm going to talk about a very popular online movement called steampunk. It's a a science fiction fantasy subgenre. Very popular online. Essentially, it imagines what would modern technology be like if it had the aesthetic, the feel of Victorian technology, the classic age of steam. And so you get uh, devices, creations that are essentially technological things, but rendered in a Victorian style, lots of brass. They have dials, they have levers. It's all a bit Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. It's 20,000 leagues under the sea. Lots of metal, and these things—they're often just artistic things. Sometimes they function, like people will, for example, uh, recreate computer keyboards, but make them look like old typewriters. Or uh, they'll have USB keys with little pistons and little little brass dials. Big event a couple of weeks back in London, where it's one of the big annual jamborees for people interested in steampunk. And I went along and spoke to some of the artists and just steampunk fans who turned up. Oh, hello, I'm uh, Cyberfy. Cyberfy. Now, I'm going to describe your costume. You're entirely silver. 
You're surrounded by a halo of what look like hypodermic syringes. Your face is covered in rhinestones. What's it all about? Well, I tonight, you see, it's a great exhibition here today. So I'm exhibiting my latest invention, which is a, a tremendously exciting craniometer, which I believe will transform society. You see, a craniometer is the secret to eternal youth and beauty. So those, those are loaded with Botox, that's what you're saying? Uh, well, it's, it's somewhat pre-Botox. It's pre-Botox. It's a little bit more painful than Botox. It does involve mild electric shocks. My name is Jazz DeLorean. I'm the writer and lead singer of Tank is the Henge. Uh, we're, we're a band from London, and we have a steam piano and an accordion and lots of eclectic influences. Steam is your uh, career, your vocation. It, yeah, it is. It certainly is. I drive a set of steam yachts for Carter Steam Fair, and there is only two of those in, in the world, actually. What is a steam yacht? A steam yacht is a funfair ride from... Uh, the one I drive is from 1901, and it's the nearest thing mankind has got to building something that's alive. My name is Mr B, the Gentleman Rhymer. I'm reconnecting hip-hop and its ilk and other parts of popular culture to the Queen's English manners. Basically, I've invented something I call chap-hop. Chap-hop? Sounds like a rum show. What is chap-hop? Well, chap-hop is exactly that. It's uh, really it's hip-hop, but, uh, you know, I'm an English gentleman. I enjoy cricket and I enjoy smoking my pipe. And, uh, you know, we have to keep it real. So, you know, I can't be rapping about the ghetto and things like that. I have to be... You're, you're straight out of Purley. I am straight out of Surrey. Cheam, in fact. <laughs> straight out of Surrey, that's where I'm from. Very good. I should describe your outfit. A very fine uh, double-breasted suit. Well, it's not a single-breasted suit, but a nice waistcoat, a nice uh, narrow tie, wonderful moustache. You've spent quite some time curling that. I have no, no wax on it whatsoever. I can, it's curling up, but I can curl it down. I can go a little bit biker with it if I wish. But It's a little bit semaphore. Exactly, yes. I can do moustache semaphore with it. You know, I can land planes with this little thing. Some steampunk enthusiasts and artists. Is this a relatively new movement, Chris, or does it have quite a big following already? It's been around for a few years, and it does have uh, quite a big following. I mean, there are steampunk uh, authors, uh, there are films with a very strong steampunk aesthetic... There is a lot of Victorian technology that can be quite easily updated, and people love doing that. I mean, if you think about the early computer, uh, for example, Babbage's difference engine, you know, it's all cogs, it's all brass. Very easy to imagine that as, you know, something that might have persisted into the future. So, yes, it does have a big online following. Now, as well as seeing these things online, are there any future events where people can see some of these objects and these gadgets in the flesh? There's a lot of activity going on throughout the year. Um, it, you can see exhibits of work. You can watch the bands that tour and perform in a steampunk style. Now, it isn't as big as some science fiction genres. It isn't as big as some literary and artistic genres, but it does have a, a sizable following online. And uh, there are even people who sell steampunk stuff. So, you know, there's a, there's a, a lot of stuff to explore out there. Rather explore indeed. I think I may go online and listen to some chap hop. That was I, our that. I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, that was our technology expert explaining the online movement of steampunk to Mira Santillingham. Thank you very much, Diana.
Now, it is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Diana O'Carroll and Dave Anser. We're answering all your science questions, so if you would like to ask us something, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. Coming up, Dave, uh, David wants to ask about batteries and why some last longer than others, and also Raymond uh, wants to know why, whether or not you can make a siphon work in a vacuum. But don't forget, we're running our kitchen science experiment. Dave, just remind us quickly what you need people to do. Basically, get a glass of water, pretty full, put something small in it which floats, see where it goes, can you keep it in the centre? Tell us what you find. Put your ping-pong ball in water and see what happens. From protons to photons and gluons to muons, the naked scientists. Science that's fundamentally more fun. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Dave Ansell and Diana O'Carroll, and we are answering all your science questions. Speaking of which, David's on the phone. Hello, David. Hiya. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. What can we do for you? Um, I'd like to know is um, why do some batteries last um, much longer than other less expensive brands and are different types more suitable for certain applications than others where the savings would not be as great? Okay, fundamentally a battery is a chemical reaction going on and part of that chemical reaction is it pushes electrons from one side of the battery to the other side. So actually you have two halves of a chemical reaction, one which absorbs electrons and one which gives them out. And the only way that the chemical reaction can carry on is where these electrons are going round and getting back to, to the other side through your circuit and they can do work when it's doing that. Now there's lots of different chemical reactions you can use and so basically the number of atoms, the number of molecules which can be active, which can move electrons across... The more you can get get in the battery, the more current, you, more charge you can store in the battery. So um, if you've got to have lots of complex things to hold it together, which take up space and take up weight, and normally it's only on the surface where these things can react. So any, any kind of centre of an electrode which isn't able to react with things is useless and doesn't work very well. So basically the way they last longer is by you have more of the battery which is active. You can use different, different chemical reactions which can store more energy, take up less space. Um, you can also use different, different chemical reactions to produce different voltages. So a lot of lithium-ion batteries are 3 volts, whereas the standard 1.5-volt um, alkaline cell is 1.5 volts, and a rechargeable battery is 1.2 volts. Um, different batteries have different properties. Um, an alkaline cell will last a very, very long time. It doesn't lose its charge. If it, you just sit there, uh, it'll last for several years. That's a shelf life for several years. The rechargeable battery will just discharge itself in maybe a month or so. So depends. Um, but a rechargeable battery can give out much more current. So if you've got high current application, the rechargeable battery will work a lot better. So yes, it, there are different um, circumstances when some are better than others. Right, so I'll make sure I uh, buy a proper battery in that case for my remote controls, not that I have that many. Anyway, I've got an email here for you, Chris, also from another Chris, and he says, how do some orchids mimic insects? This is amazing. I was reading a paper on this the other day, which is why I thought this question was fantastic. Um, There was a wonderful paper written by a lady called Jennifer Brodman, who's a researcher at the University of Ulm, and she was on the Chinese island of Hainan looking at an orchid called Dendrobium sinensi. Now, this is a really interesting orchid because no one knew what pollinated it. It makes this beautiful flower. It's a white flower with a red centre, but it's rewardless. In other words, the flower doesn't give anybody anything if they come and visit it. So she decided to do a stakeout, and she watched this flower, 121 hours of footage to see what came by, and 35 insects paid a visit, of which the majority, over 30, were a kind of hornet. And she thought, well, that's interesting. A closer inspection, though, revealed that these hornets didn't come in and spend much time loitering there. They flew in and pounced on the flower, and then abruptly left. But when they looked more closely, they saw that as the hornet was doing the pouncing, it was actually depositing a bit of pollen on the orchid, fertilising it, and also picking up some pollen 
to take to another flower. So they thought there must be something which is attracting this hornet to this flower. So they made extracts of all the chemicals that come out of the flower, and they found one really interesting one. It's icosen-1-ol, and, and this particular molecule is a pheromone made by bees. And, in fact, it's an alarm pheromone that bees make when they want to tell other bees about something exciting going on. And what they realised is that this hornet species eats bees, and it feeds the bees to its young hornet larvae. So what the orchid is doing is making itself smell like a bee to attract a hornet to get itself fertilised. And it's doing it by making the same chemicals that the bees would, and thereby fooling the hornet. It's a wonderful example of sexual kind of um, subversion going on. It sounds on. so totally um, contrived. It does, but the, <laughs> but the point is that uh, the plant has evolved to have the same genetic pathway that c- or the same synthetic pathway that can produce these chemicals because this is the way in which it gets itself pollinated and very effectively too by the look of it. So isn't that just the most amazing and elegant bit of science? So if you want to read it, it was actually published in Current Biology last year. Jennifer Brodman, wonderful bit of science. Thank you, Diana. Raymond is on the telephone. Hello, Raymond. Good afternoon. Good evening. I'm in the uh, in the colonies. I'm not sure what it is there. Oh, well, it's the mother country here calling to the colonies. What can we do for you? I've always wondered and haven't been able to get a definitive answer. Would a siphon work in a vacuum, or is it the atmospheric pressure pushing on the water that pushes it up over the hump and down to the lower level? Simple answer to that is no, it wouldn't work. Um, the general way that siphons work in general is that essentially you've got air pressure pushing down on both ends of your pipe. Um, one pipe, one end is higher than the other. Um, that, then that can push, pushes on both sides. Um, then it can push the water up to the top and then it can carry on going. If there wasn't any air pressure, then you'd, you could form a bubble at the top of the tube and that bubble would expand and expand until the two levels of water are even, uh, the same level as their two tanks. Okay, so that's a simple answer. The slightly more complicated answer is that water has something called cohesion. The water molecules do stick together. It's related to surface tension. And therefore, as long as you don't form any bubbles, water can actually be pulled and actually will stay stay stuck together even at a negative pressure, even at zero pressure, or even actually you can pull it apart, which is the reason why trees can actually grow higher than about 30 metres, which is the um, the air pressure which would push the water up, or 10 metres which would push the water up. Um, And so it was a very, very thin tube, and until you got a bubble, it would work for a bit, but not for very long. Good question, though. Thank you very much, Roman. Diana, very, very quickly, just for you, Alan Scahill is wondering, have archaeologists ever found evidence of conjoined, in other words, Siamese twins, going back in history? Well, as far as I'm aware, no. And I think it would be quite big news if they had. But there are all sorts of uh, historical examples. And there was one example in some art made by the Moche, which was a a group of of people living in um, coastal Peru in South America, sort of around the turn of the first millennium. Um, But basically about 300 AD, they they made some pretty pictures of them. But there's also some examples um, about, I think it was 965, um, there were some European Siamese these twins were recorded in history but as I say as far as I know no no skeletal evidence presumably because it would have been so hard to give birth to a Siamese twin probably many perished and so did many mothers and it would have just been end of story that's the thing and also uh, neonatal bones that is bones of babies really don't survive very well at all Indeed. Here's the bit which I'm really looking forward to, though, because I'm sure I've seen this manifest in my breakfast cereal. Dave, put us out of our misery. Tell us about this week's Kitchen Science. OK, so for Kitchen Science, what we need here is a glass of water, if you want to take that, Diana. OK. 
What do I do with this? Okay, and then just put the ping pong ball in it and see what happens. Right, so ping pong ball's going in the middle. And it's gone to the edge. Try and keep it in the middle. Um, okay. Ah! It's getting there for a bit. I'm, I'm slowly, winning, I'm winning. Uh, uh, it's moving, moving to it's the edge. Moving. It's <laughs> I've failed. The edge. Every time it goes to the edge. Okay. Why, there it goes. Why will it not stay in the middle? Why will it... Why is it moving to the edge? Okay, I was talking about surface tension before. Um, water molecules are all attracted to each other. And if you um, look at the side, and therefore they're all attracted to each other and they stick to the, um, both the glass and the ball. And if you look at the edge, you can see that it's sticking to it because the water rises up the edge yeah, slightly. Yeah, there's a bit of a boat there. A bit of a men meniscus. Yeah. Um, and so that, so at the moment, if it's in the centre, if it was in the middle of a perfectly flat piece of water, that's um, surface tension would be pulling in all directions at about 45 degrees downwards and it wouldn't move. But as soon as you get close to the side, if you look at what happens to that meniscus... The, the meniscus on the, the side closest to the edge, um, the two meniscus join and actually gets more horizontal. So the surface tension on the edge side is pulling horizontally, but the surface tension on the middle side is pulling 45 degrees. They both pull at the same force, so the one which is horizontal wins. So it's more effective. So it pulls it towards the edge. Now the trick to get it to stay in the middle is if we fill up the glass right to the top... So it's okay. overlapping. So it's like you're going to get water all over my questions. It's not good in a studio full of expensive <laughs> equipment. So if I'm, now I'm filling this up, so it's actually over the top. Okay. Yeah. So there's actually a meniscus, which instead of now going up at the edge, it's going down at the edge. David's created the the glass with with liquid in it equivalent to something you'll never see in a pub, which is a glass that's actually full, <laughs> over full. Yeah, it's it's over the, the top of the edge. The water's actually bulging over the top of the glass. glass. So if I push that to the edge now, it actually bounces oh, off. Oh, wow, it does the opposite. Oh, cool. Because now when the meniscus reaches the edge, instead of going horizontal, it actually goes more vertical. So now you've got a, a meniscus on the edge which is just pulling down and not outwards, and in, on the other side it's pulling at 45 degrees. So now the 45 degrees one, one wins and it pulls it into the centre. You can see this manifest in your Rice Krispies, can't you? When you put cereal in milk in a cereal bowl, you see them all going around the edge of the bowl, don't you? Yeah, and also they'll tend to clump together if they're sitting on the surface. And also bubbles do the same thing bubbles is the reason why bubbles are attracted to each other and will stick to the edge of a glass or whatever and the real world science here how do we see this manifest in nature or well, you know what's in, the application in a bowl all over the place <laughs> so why when you get out of the bath you're covered in bubbles then is that why because they all sort of migrate towards you as you're yeah. sitting there Oh, there you go. <laughs> what a fantastic explanation. Thank you, Dave. And uh, there's pictures of that on our website, actually. A really nice bit of video at nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science if you want to check it out. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Dave Ansell and Diana O'Carroll. Got an email here from Haley who says, what's the most accurate way to calculate calories in food and how are these calories actually counted? I think we have to have a joint effort here because we've all at some point dealt with this because Diana did a question of the week on something a bit similar a while back. But I'll start with the simple aspect of this, probably good for me, which is that the way scientists work out how many calories are in food is quite literally by burning it you use something called a bomb calorimeter and you put the food inside a container you use an electrical element to ignite the food and that's because you can log exactly how much electricity you've fed to the element so you can work out how much energy it took to get the food ignited and you soak up all of the heat that comes out of the burning food by water and you measure the temperature rise in the water and we know how much energy you have to put in water to make the temperature rise by a certain amount so we can work out how much energy comes out of the food so if you subtract how much energy you had to put in to light it in the first place from how much came out at the end of the day that tells you the gross amount of energy you could get out of the food. 
but it is a bit more complicated than that, isn't it, Dave? Yeah, the problem is that you don't absorb all the energy which is in the food, which you get from burning it. So things like um, dietary fibre, which you can't digest, goes straight through you. You don't get any energy out of it. Some things take more energy to digest than others. Um, so I think definitely when they're actually working it out, they do it from a great big table of ingredients and they work it out. I'm not exactly sure how they work out how much food is absorbed in each of it from each of the ingredients. Yeah, I think um, when we had Susan Jeb on to answer the question about you know how much how many calories are actually absorbed from food, um, she said that a lot of it does end up in your urine and your poo, and also that bacteria will end up digesting um, a lot of calories in your gut, and that the amount of calories that bacteria will get through actually varies between um, people's guts because they have different you know different species in there excellent ollie deans dave says why does toothpaste reappear after i've wiped it off um i love listening to the naked scientists and here's my question being rather clumsy uh, when i get dressed in my school jumper and i'm doing my teeth although not necessarily at the same time i somehow manage to get toothpaste on my jumper i wipe it off but then later in the day it shows up as a mark as though i'd never wiped it off although i'm clumsy when i wipe it off it looks like it's all gone so why does it reappear in this way why won't it go away I get into trouble with this one all the time with my girlfriend because I'm pretty clumsy when doing my teeth as well. Um, what's going on here? It's to do with um, the reason why T-shirts go fairly transparent when you when they get wet. Basically, um, the reason why you can see a white object is actually, if you look at it under a big microscope, it's lots of transparent crystals of lumps. Um, light hits it, it gets bent because light goes slower in it, and it gets bounced off in all sorts of different directions because the surface is very rough. If you cover it in water, then that smooths out the surface so light can go through much better so it looks dark. As soon as that water, so you've actually cleaned off most of the toothpaste, not quite all of it, it dries out, and then you can see all those little particles, the light bounces off, and it looks white. It's a bit similar to why, you know, paint looks lighter when it dries. Similar sort of thing, is it? Exactly the same thing. I've got a question here from Ian, who came by email, and he says, why do certain spiders have such powerful poison? It just seems a bit like overkill, really. It's not just spiders. There's many examples of organisms in the natural world that make toxins that are really, really toxic. It's, as one researcher put it to me, a case of overkill, and they do it incredibly well. And the reason probably is because these animals have evolved to use and exploit a whole range of different prey rather than just one. And this means that because these different prey are different, they therefore need to make a range of different venoms which have action against a range of different prey. And if they just used one, it would be very easy for one prey to evolve away from being sensitive to that particular venom. By using a range of different venoms and therefore targeting a range of different prey there's no chance that it will stop working. And over time, they've just continually updated and adjusted their repertoire. So they have this amazing example of all these different molecules, some of which will work really well against one species, others less so. And when they sting us, some of them absolutely take us to the cleaners. And it's not just spiders. There's many, many examples of this going on all around nature. So some prey will evolve to be more resistant to them so that it doesn't work as well. So they have to get stronger and stronger. Yes, but also it means that some of these genes do at the same time become redundant, some of these venoms, and so they actually lose the ability to use them, um, and therefore those genes stop working. It doesn't mean that they're still hiding in the genome, but they just don't turn those genes into products anymore. But, yeah, certainly very interesting. Diana. Right, it's night now time, even for question of the week. And this week it's time to get all muddy in the garden in search of some tasty worms. This is Sarah from West Sussex. I pass a water meadow each day and during the winter I've been wondering how the worms cope when it is flooded for days at a time. How do they manage with conditions that range from underwater to baked dry when we have a hot summer? Many thanks. How do wriggly worms survive the wet weather? Hi, I'm Kevin Butt from the Earthworm Research Group at the University of Central Lancashire. 
Okay, worms are quite amazing creatures, really. Unlike many other creatures, they obtain their oxygen through their moist skin. They don't have anything like lungs or gills, unlike other animals. This means they can get the oxygen they need from the air, which is the normal situation, but equally they can get their oxygen from water, because obviously water is H2O containing oxygen. So if the animal is underwater, if an earthworm is underwater, it can get oxygen just as easily as if it was in the air. And, you know, experiments have been undertaken keeping earthworms underwater for days on end, and they come to no harm. Some people think that if a worm's burrow gets flooded, then they would seek to escape. But as I've just mentioned, they don't need to because they can get the oxygen they need from the water. However, quite often we see earthworms on the soil surface or on pavements, seemingly trying to escape from inundation of water. But perhaps it's not that, maybe it's something slightly different, that the animals are actually trying to make use of the moist conditions in order to move away from their burrows, if you like, to pastures new, so that they can mate with individuals that are not closely related to themselves. Not only do earthworms survive well under wet conditions, they can survive well under dry conditions in the soil, if it's really, really dry. And they do this perhaps by creating a spherical a chamber in the ground, lining it with their own mucus, curling up, almost tying themselves in a knot, and just sitting there and waiting for better conditions to come along. And many species of earthworm do this. Others, like the lobworm, the big worm that lives in Britain, burrow deeply down into the soil and just avoid the dry conditions near the surface. So there's a question for you, Diana. Why don't they tie themselves in knots? Maybe that's for next week. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. Um, well, a worm will happily swim about in the mud and even they might even go on a little adventure across the footpath if it's raining. According to our expert, when the soil freezes, they will dig down a metre or so. But if they do get stuck in the frozen layers, they will, again, form this hibernation chamber and sit out the cold. But let's venture back above soil now for our next question. My name is Mike Mohali. I'm calling from uh, Pretoria. We have a great-grandmother. We are not sure exactly how old is she. And uh, according to the Home Affairs, they're saying she was born in 1902. So we strongly believe that uh, it's not the accurate age for our great-grandmother. So she needs us to help find someone who can establish exactly in which way she was born. So, can you carbon date your grandmother? No photocopy of romance jokes, please. Or are there any other ways to accurately tell how old someone is? Send your answers to chris at thenakedscientist.com or write them on our forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thank you, Diana. Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week. And you can find more past episodes of Question of the Week either from our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash QOTW or you can look it up on iTunes it goes back about two or three years now so quite a library that's all we've got time for this week so thank you very much for joining us and for sending in your thoughts and questions and thank you also to Erki Ruslati who joined us at the beginning of the show to talk about his new anti-cancer therapy thank you also as ever to our wonderful production team here at The Naked Scientist Mira Senthalingam, Tom Simpkins, Sarah Castor-Perry and Ben Valsler and speaking of Ben Valsler, he'll be with you next week and here's what he's going to be up to. On The Naked Scientists, I'll be bringing you the highlights of the Royal Astronomical Society's National Astronomy Meeting. We'll hear about the first stars that lived and died in our universe and how we study the cosmic microwave background radiation. That's the echoes of the Big Bang. 
plus how the weather in space affects technology on Earth, and how you can get involved in astronomy research without leaving your home, joining the Galaxy Zoo Network to try and spot a supernova. So that's what you've got to look forward to next week. If you have any questions for us in the meantime, then do send them in as ever the email address chris at thenakedscientist.com. In the meantime, have a very nice week and we'll see you soon. Goodbye. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Scientist.com.